Welcome to The Kick in the Cast, the audio blog of a wannabe podcast novelist. My name's Chris, and this is Episode 5. Hello, and welcome back to The Kick in the Cast. So, I'm back on track and releasing this episode on time, and will endeavor to do so in the future. Well, this episode marks a small objective I put out for myself. Until now, I really haven't advertised this show, mostly because I wanted to make sure I could do it. Some would say it's easy to make a podcast, and maybe it is. Well, mechanically, anyway. But let's be honest. A microphone, a reliable PC, and some software are really all you need to make a show. But what goes into that show, well, that's another story. I'll ramble on this a bit more after today's chapter. Today, I have chapter four of Outcast here for your listening pleasure. And as always, this episode is being cross-posted to the original Outcast podcast feed. If you're listening to this on that original feed, I welcome you to subscribe to this show at feeds.feedbrunner.com slash kickinthecast. And now, without further ado, I present chapter four of Outcast. Outcast. A novel, written and read by Chris Fitzton. Chapter 4 Away from it all now, I can see how obvious it was. The signs were all around me, yet, for all the warning and foreshadowing, I was too blinded by my ambitions and hopes to see what was coming. Thing is, Even if I'd known, even if for that entire month in rehabilitation, had I known what was to come, could I have changed anything? Wasn't this just a little too big for a cub to manage? Could I have made a difference, even if I'd tried? Even though my rehabilitation started rough for me, by the end of that month I was beginning to feel like my old self again. After my revelation, thanks to my visitor, I talked to Dr. Sheck, and he adjusted my therapy protocols to allow for a more gradual progression. By the end of that second week, the delay between thought and action was gone. The implants had perfectly synchronized to my body's nervous system and were now as much a part of me as if I'd been born with them. I never mentioned my late-night visitor, though. In truth, I wasn't sure if he even existed, or if it was just some subconscious need to get my head back on straight. I never heard his voice again, but his riddle and my subsequent revelation helped immensely. If I were more religious, I would have chalked it up to a divine visit. Part of that changed protocol was to evaluate the limits of my unexpected developments. During the last week of my therapy, Dr. Twellen and her staff pushed me to every possible limit they could, and I surprised them by not only meeting those expectations, but far surpassing them. My strength had increased fivefold, and I was able to run for hours before my breathing became labored. It reminded me of an old holovid from Earth that I'd seen with my friends. Better, stronger, faster, I believe was the tagline. I was thankful that at least my body didn't make those god's awful sounds whenever I exerted myself. With the calibration complete, my nerves also calmed down so much that Dr. Twan's massages no longer burned like fire. 
Instead, they were the one thing I could look forward to at the end of the day. Well, that and time with my family, who up until last week spent as much time with me as they could. Mother had even gone out and bought me a new set of clothes for the day of my homecoming. Thinking back, I hope she didn't spend too much on it. Finally, the day of my release came. Dr. Sheck signed off on my release form, and I spent the better part of that morning making the rounds and saying goodbye to all who'd helped me through to this point. Dr. Twellen gave me what Terrence would call a bear hug and told me I'd been her best patient. <laughs> I bet she says that to all her massage clients. Still, I appreciated the sentiment. Dr. Sheck pushed my hover chair towards the hospital entrance. The closer we got to the doors, the more my heart pounded in anticipation. I began wondering who would ride home with me. Would it be mother? Grandfather? Any of my brothers or sisters? It didn't matter to me. Any of them would be welcome company for my trip home. However, instead of family, a regally dressed lion met Dr. Sheck and I. The insignia on his robe showed that he was an acolyte, a personal assistant to the high elder of the Kerala Valley clans. Each clan had an elder, but the high elder, or high one as he's called, sits on the chief seat of the clan high council. There are 12 seats in total in this governing body, the other 11 occupied by elected elders. The acolyte's presence mystified me. Why would an official representative of the clans be coming to take me home? Had something happened? Was my family safe? The acolyte said nothing to me. He merely gestured for me to rise from my hover chair and climb into the back of a foreboding black skimmer just behind him. I looked back at Dr. Sheck, who merely shrugged. I stood up and walked towards the skimmer, taking one last look at the hospital before finally climbing in and sliding over to make room for the acolyte. Moments later, he was inside, and the skimmer took off even before he fully closed the door. As we rode along, the landscape before me transformed from a forest of immense buildings to a jungle of residential units, and finally to vast stretches of open fields, marking the boundary between Kerala City and the outlying clan lands. Despite the mysterious circumstances of my return, I was amazed at the beauty of it all. The wind outside blew across the tall grasses on most of the fields, making them shimmer like great lakes of green. I could just hear the hiss of the grass and knew that this summer I'd be spending as much time in those fields as I could. I also knew my coming of age was only a few short weeks away, at which time Shiana and I would be married. I pictured the two of us running through those fields just a few meters away from me, each chasing each other as children would. Although, what we did together after the chase was over was certainly not what children would do. The mere thought of it all made me smile despite myself. I stole a few glances at the acolyte and marveled at how straight-faced he was through all of this. While in truth I didn't fully know an acolyte's proper behavior, I couldn't imagine it involved such a cold demeanor towards others. I shrugged it off. Was he under orders not to speak? Was this task punishment for something he did? Or, like a lot of adults, had he just no idea how to talk to a cub like me? Huh. If only it had been so easy. Finally, the skimmer pulled off the main road and entered the land of the Tiger's Paw Clan. 
The road remained wide open for the first few kilometers, but for the last two, densely growing trees flanked the sides of the road. I can't tell you how thrilled I was to be seeing them again. I had taken them for granted for most of my life, merely acknowledging that they were there, but now I was overjoyed to see them. They were the first real, tangible indicators that I was going home. Finally, the skimmer slowed to a stop and the acolyte stepped out. Rather than getting out on my side, he silently beckoned me to come out on his, so I did. At first, I was curious as to why he wanted such a thing done, but the sextet of people waiting for me slowly began to answer that question. I recognized the black and gold uniforms they wore, as well as the crests sewn into each one. These six were known as Shatlia, the clan honor guard. They were part of a larger contingent of warriors hand-picked from the clans and reputed to be the finest fighters in the land. Of course, these days the title didn't carry as much weight as it did during the early days of the Ascensions. Still, one didn't become a Shatlia without possessing some skills. Before I could ask what was going on, the acolyte finally spoke, and the two words that came out of his muzzle made me wish he had indeed been sworn to silence. Bind him. The six Shatlia approached me and forced me against the skimmer. They moved my hands behind my back, binding my hands and arms tightly. Then two of them, a lion and a muscular leopard, grabbed me by the shoulders and we all marched away from the mansion. I caught one last look at my home before one of the other Shatlia smacked me in the back of the head, forcing my eyes forward. I stole glances at the other buildings on the estate grounds as we marched along. We passed by the war hall, where I once trained with the rest of my family. We went by the servants' quarters, as well as the large Quonset, which stored the groundskeeping machinery. As we passed by each place, I began to realize our destination, and my fear rose. After several minutes of walking, I saw it. The Temple of Kaon. During the ascensions, my ancestors erected this building in tribute to our clan's patron to the gods. Kaon was the patron of family, and as such his teachings focused on the sacred institution that was a family. Other clans also prayed to Kaon, and as a result the high priest only visited us once a month to lead us in prayer. Any other time, the temple was open to any of us for self-reflection or silent prayers for guidance and insight. As we neared, I noticed that whatever was going on at the temple had drawn the attention and attendance of nearly every clan in the Kerala Valley. I could see supplicants and servants from over two dozen different clans, all gathered outside the temple, ready to answer their master's calls should they arise. The Shadliya marched me past the lot of them, and none seemed willing or able to make eye contact with me. The rules of conduct between clansmen and Takari, a word in my language meaning peasant or person of lower standing, hasn't called for such a gesture in millennia. Kaon's very teachings say to look everyone in the eye as an equal and to never turn your back or avert your eyes. This gesture on their parts made my uneasiness grow even more and I suddenly dreaded walking through the temple doors. As we entered the temple proper, I noticed that all the holy symbols and icons collected over the centuries and stored here were covered in black shrouds. The place seemed foreboding in the long shadows of the late afternoon. 
It felt less like a holy place and more like some desecrated ruin where the Dark One's minions would gather for their nightly rituals. My nose crinkled at the feral smell the place seemed to now possess. It took a moment before I realized that the predatory scent wasn't coming from the temple, but from the sick Chatelier marching me down the aisle. I swallowed hard, realizing that they were more than ready, and eager, to take my life if so ordered. We stopped at the last row of pews and I looked up at the altar. Seated there were three figures whose muzzles bore stone-faced expressions of neutrality. I recognized the one on the left as none other than Lars Rondoki himself. The year and month had been good to his wounds, it seemed. He'd suffered no permanent effects of the pasting my father had given him at the Kumal. To the right of center was a tiger, and at first I thought it was my grandfather. However, the facial markings weren't quite right, so I guessed him to be the elder of the Forest Lord clan. Grandfather had mentioned him several times, though I'd never met him. Between the two sat a regal-looking lion with several vestments of authority upon his person. It was the High Elder himself, Sereth Klasor of the Jungle Pride clan. I suddenly realized that this whole thing was somehow because of me. I began breathing hard as I heard a door open. From one of the antechambers in the temple, my assembled family emerged and took their seats to my left. I felt both joy and horror at seeing them, for they all bore unemotional looks on their muzzles. My heart began to ache, and my spirit began to deflate. All this time, all the words of encouragement, all for this? I don't know what I'd done to deserve this, but judging from everything, I'd done something wrong. Something terribly wrong. On your knees, dog! Something hit the back of my legs and I fell to my knees, wincing in pain as I hit a bit too hard on the wood floor. I felt myself falling forward, but someone yanked me back up harshly by my ears. A single tear of pain escaped my left eye, but I managed to stifle any sound. At that moment, I feared the slightest noise would get my throat cut by the Shatlia. I faced forward as the high one and the others all rose. This assembly will now come to order, spoke the lion. I sensed everyone stiffen as though coming to attention. I, too, came to a stiff posture the moment I heard two swords clear their scabbards and rest lightly on my shoulders. A mere flick of the wrist by either the lion or the leopard, and I'd have about thirty seconds to plead my case before my entire life's blood left my body. Elder Rondoki, you have called this tribunal together in protest of the Clan of the Tiger's Paw. Is that correct? It is, said the panther, his voice arrogant as always. He stepped forward and produced an ornate scroll. He paused for a moment as he opened it. The Clan of the Midnight Fang hereby formally charges the Clan of the Tiger's Paw of failure. Failure to protect a holy and sacred clan icon from harm. I speak, of course, of the Kalpak, the holy relic of Ratal, the god of war. My stomach churned violently as I recalled that night. My arms and legs suddenly ached from the remembered wounds. My scars tingled with remembrance and my breathing became even shorter. I was having a panic attack, yet I remained still for fear of those two blades. 
The relic was won by Lucas Calamar in last year's Kumal tournament, began Lars. However, his injuries prevented him from completing the rite of acceptance, and therefore the duty was passed to his firstborn son, Dallin. He pointed at me as though I was some freak on display. From there, the whereabouts of the Kalpak is a secret known only to him. Given the condition in which he was found, offered the Forest Lord Elder, I think his name was Tarmon. It would be logical to assume the cub met with the most unfortunate event. Circumstances aside, High One, this one has failed to preserve the honor of the clans by either losing the Kalpak to a group of thieves, or he's hoarding it for some other purpose. The assembled clansmen all murmured their opinions and thoughts on the accusation. I wanted to plead my case. I wanted to testify on my behalf, but I feared that to say anything would simply earn me a quick death. My eyes scanned the room as much as they could. I tried to look for anyone who would come forward and say something. No one did. No one came to my defense because no one witnessed what happened. I'd run off alone. So the only ones who knew what happened were me and my attackers. Your words ring with merit, Elder Rondoki, said the High One. The fact remains that the Kalpak is indeed lost, and this one here is the last clansman to have seen it. He looked at me with a gaze I can only describe as aged arrogance. His smile was patronizing. I could feel no warmth behind it, and I felt my blood grow cold. Such an atrocity is beyond contempt, said Lars, now addressing everyone in the temple. For a father to have trusted his child to such a holy task is not only irresponsible, it is a slap in the muzzle of all clansmen here. He began stalking the room, getting into the faces of everyone assembled. For the sake of justice itself, this cub's father should behead him for being so pathetic. He leveled a gaze at me that chilled me to the bone. In fact, he sneered, I insist on it. Many gasps filled the room, joined with my own. All the time spent recovering in hopes of a joyous family reunion, only to come to this. Everything the doctors had done for me, wasted so a pakla like Lars Rondoki could endorse my execution? It would have been better for me to have died that night a year ago. Better to die with honor in combat than like this. Lucas Calamar, challenged Lars. While it was this cub who ultimately lost the Kalpak a year ago, it was your request that placed it in his hands. I saw my father rise and approach the three seated before me. Yes, he said. My lack of foresight ultimately caused the Kalpak to fall into the hands of thieves. He then looked over at me, and our eyes locked for the first time in over a year. What I saw looking back at me was a sight no cub should ever see coming from a parent. It was a blank stare, devoid of compassion and bereft of recognition. It was as if I no longer existed to him. Then is it not fitting, said Lars, to recognize your failure in teaching? He gestured towards me again. This was once your student, was he not? He was. Then by your admission, you did not prepare this one well enough to carry out the very task to which you held him, concluded the panther. Bias logic, sure, but logic nonetheless. 
My heart continued to pound mercilessly as Lars approached my father, unsheathing his sword and presenting it to him. "'Yours is the right,' he began, "'to make amends for this atrocity here and now. "'Punish this thing before us as you see fit, Lucas, "'and your clan will suffer no further shame. "'Upon that you have my word.' My father took the sword from Lars' hands. He was going to go through with this. He walked towards me, and the fear erupted within me like a volcano. I began to tremble, and despite everything I tried, there was nothing I could do to stop myself. Any attempts at easing the shaking only made it worse. My strength was enough that I could break my bonds, but I knew I was nowhere near able to avoid the swords of the Shatlia afterward. No matter what I did, all avenues ended at the same destination. My death. Father stopped before me and lifted my head with the blade of Lars' sword, exposing my neck for a clean strike. I could not speak a word owing to my fear. I could barely breathe knowing that I was about to die like this, like an animal who'd messed on an expensive throw rug. I blinked back my tears wanting so badly to close my eyes, but at the same time wanting my last vision to be that of my father ending my life. At least I would show him that much bravery. You are an insult to your clan, and to all clans, he growled. For your failure do you deserve this. He reared back with the blade, and I heard it hiss through the air as it came down. I felt the bite of the steel start at my left shoulder and trace down my chest. The furrow he left behind was not that deep, but it was bloody enough to convince me that I'd bleed out before long. I gritted my teeth to try and ride out the pain, refusing to cry out even after this. I strained against my bonds, trying through sheer force of will to not break them and startle the Shatli in any way. I continued to stare at my father, both surprised and relieved that I was still able to do so. I heard Lars chuckle. Have you let your practice go so lax, Lucas? Can't even end the life of one so pathetic? My father turned towards Lars. He held the sword up for the panther to take, but then dropped it at the elder's feet. His fate has been chosen, he said, ignoring Lars's glare. Like the small wound that kills slowly so too will his end be prolonged. A quick tap is far too merciful for what he's done. I instead choose exile. Oh, gods, no. Anything but that. He walked back toward me and grabbed me by my lower jaw, forcing me to tilt my head upwards and gaze into his cold, dark eyes. His next words would echo in my mind for years to come. You are no longer my son. He then stood up and looked toward the Shatlia. Take him away. The Shatlia hoisted me up painfully and half-led, half-dragged me out of the temple. As I approached the exit, my ears detected not a word or sound out of anyone, save them turning their backs on me as I exited. Even my youngest siblings had gone cold. I heard not a peep out of them. I could only wonder at their deception over the past month, driving me toward a speedy recovery all the time knowing I'd come home to this. It's a fate worse than death amongst the clans. 
Exiles are akin to criminals released into a neighborhood only to have the community notified of their status. Even by non-clan standards, I was now scum. Setting foot on clan lands now was an instant death sentence, and to that end, any clansman could take my life and fear no prosecution. The execution of an exile was a deed equal to that of urban beautification. Employment was impossible as exiles lost their surnames. Unless someone forged a new identity for them, the only way an exile can earn a living is through illegal means. If religion had given my clan one thing, though, it was enough compassion to give an exile shelter, albeit away from an estate. According to the Testament of Kaon, exiles were damned, yes, but not beyond redemption. The doctrine demanded that clans construct a building, 20 feet by 20 feet, on the very fringe of their lands. It was here that an exile would live until they had either found their way to redemption or died. As we approached this place, my mind began turning things over and over. Why had Father spared my life? Mercy? It would have been more merciful to kill me outright than stick me among the exiles. Was it compassion? Despite his cold gaze, could he truly not bring himself to spill my entrails on the ground? Or was he so ashamed of me, to have my existence stripped from the clan annals was the only way he could think to punish me? Man, that altar cost me fifty credits, joked one of the six Shatlia. I'd figured he'd have slit this Pakla's throat. What, Lucas Calamar kills someone? asked another. He hasn't raised so much as a fist since the last Kumal. Word has it he's lost his nerve and wouldn't hurt a fly. <laughs> Pathetic pacifist. The Shadlia wasn't wrong. I'd always remembered Father to be a gentle soul. I wanted to say something, but by then the loss of blood from my chest wound and the overall depression of the moment kept me silent. As the realization of what my father had done to me sunk in further, I started asking myself why I should even try to defend him. He could have stood up for me in that damned assembly. He could have called Lars out for the arrogant pakla he is. But no. He instead decided to turn his back on his flesh and blood. On his very son. My sadness was slowly brewing into anger. Justified or not, I couldn't help but feel betrayed. My father, the clans, everything and everyone I once believed in had all turned against me. The so-called elite society of my homeworld had suddenly cut me loose instead of rallying behind me to try and solve a crime. The charisma of one panther a sworn enemy of my former clan, had swung the popular opinion against me and would forever mark me as a failure in their eyes. Even if I did somehow atone for what I'd done, the stigma of tonight would forever be a black mark on my soul. We finally reached the boundary of the estate. Immediately, the landscape seemed to change from a well-manicured lawn and foliage to something far more untamed. The ground was bereft of a sidewalk, and the path had long overgrown with weeds and roots. I did my best not to stumble, but inevitably landed on my muzzle a few times, wincing as dirt and other things rubbed into my wound. Each time the Shetlia picked me up, they either laughed or yelled at me, and pushed me onward. At last, about a half kilometer away from the estate, we entered a clearing. Before me stood a structure that appeared sound, but aged. The Shadliya all stood silent for a moment, as if afraid. 
Perhaps it wasn't so much the look of the place, but the stigma behind it. Was it reverence they were feeling, or fear? I guess I'll never really know. They shoved me forward toward the door of the place. There was no lock on it, so any passing wanderer could have set up residence here at any time. Eviction of any squatters this night would be via clan steel. My disgust grew at the thought of seeing them execute an innocent just to serve protocol. Thankfully, when the door swung open, the only thing that greeted us was the rank odor of disuse, rodent droppings, and a very slight hint of that sweet death smell. The realization that this was where I'd be spending the rest of my life suddenly sunk in. The anger, the despair, and the fear all rose simultaneously within me, creating a chaos of emotions that threatened to burst out of me. Perhaps this was why, when the Lee Chudley shoved me hard into the dwelling and I hit the ground on my shoulder, I leveled a glare at him and snarled a curse against him and his family. <laughs> yeah, big talk coming from someone bound, exiled, and sporting a bleeding gash across his chest. Unfortunately, the Chatelier took the insult seriously, and he and his comrades all charged in. His first kick was straight to my stomach, sending me rolling across the floor, covering me in the effluent that was awash in this place. I felt bile and blood both rising to my throat as the noble honor guard of the clans continued to kick and punch at me, laughing and yelling insults. My vision had gone spotty, my ears were ringing, and Father's sword strike was burning like fire. Yet above it all, I heard one of them yell, Cut it off! Make sure this pakla never breeds! Right after, the sound of a sword unsheathing filled my ears, and that was all it took. I felt a sudden surge of energy course through my body, making my heart pound and my muscles tense. The implants in my arms began tingling slightly, but to me they felt like fire fueling my muscles and only adding to my rage. I snapped the bonds that held my arms at bay and struck out wildly. My fist connected with something, and then I heard the scream. I couldn't see what I'd done or to whom, but the scream told me all I needed. I felt a fist snap across my muzzle, knocking me to the ground again. I rolled until I bumped up against someone's leg and, on instinct, clamped my jaws down on it and bit down hard. I pierced the flesh and let the blood wash into my mouth. I shook my head vigorously, reveling in my victim's scream of pain and terror. When I finally pulled free, I'd taken a good-sized chunk of his leg muscle with me. Come on, yelled one of them. Let's get out of here. What about him? Another asked. Leave him, said the first. By morning, he'll be dead anyway. I heard the door slam, and the Shadlia were gone. I curled up into a ball, the adrenaline fading from my system and the pain returning. I hurt all over. My ribs felt as though all of them were either cracked or broken. My head felt deformed from all the punishment it had taken, and the stench of blood and waste was overpowering. I felt the blood oozing out from my wound, as well as my nose and one of my ears. It hurt to breathe and to move. The Shadlia had been right. I was going to die this night. I felt the night close in on me and my body grew cold. There was no hope for me now. The future was little more than a dark path enshrouded by uncertainty and chaos. All I'd lived for, all I believed, all of it was gone.
The very society of which I'd been a part had cast me aside like garbage. Now I was going to die alone. As the last of my strength left me, I silently prayed to the patrons for mercy, asking forgiveness for what I'd done. I now had no place in paradise, I knew that. But perhaps the first of the seven hells, the hell of misfortune, would welcome me. It wasn't much of a mercy, but I would take what I could get. I breathed what felt like my last and felt myself deflate. Unconsciousness gracefully swept over me, covering me in darkness and the mercy of no more pain. I now awaited the sweet release of death to take me away from this place and this nightmare that had become my life. Little did I know that fate had other plans for me. And that's our story. Before the chapter, I talked a bit about making a podcast. As I said, from a mechanical or technological sense, it's easy to make something. That being said, what goes into the podcast, the content, that's the important part. Once you get behind the mic and start something like this, you create a type of contract with your audience. I know, some people get into this with dreams of fame and fortune. But it doesn't happen at the start. The people I recognize as my podcast heroes these days have been doing this for years. Not everyone survives. You know, life happens, interests change, and for some, the luster of the project fades. Someone once told me that an endeavor like this is a labor of love. Even if you're casting yourself to no one, at the end of the day, what counts is that you did it. My own labor of love is coming along, but like any project, it's suffered a few bumps along the way. I'm thinking of introducing some kind of metrics into these shows to prove that I'm progressing on a new beginning. And I'll look into it, and maybe by next week's episode, I can start reporting some actual numbers on my progress. Admittedly, job searching and the fact that several pandemic-related relief programs are ending have made things a little stressful for me. My last job lulled me into a sense of complacency, and now that I'm on the hunt again, a lot of my IT skills that I once took for granted aren't as sharp or current as they once were. I've found some online courses that should help, so I'll be wedging them into my daily routines as well as writing, recording, etc. And so I think that'll do it for this episode. As always, feel free to subscribe to the show at feeds.feedburner.com slash kickinthecast so you won't miss a single episode. For feedback, you can email me at outcastnovel at gmail.com, or you can leave a message via SpeakPipe at the show's website at kickit.yo5.ca. So until next time, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and above all, have a good week. This is Chris, signing out. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to The Kick in the Cast, the audio blog of a wannabe podcast novelist. For more information, please visit the show's website at kickit.yo5.ca. And to leave any feedback, please feel free to drop an email at outcastnovel at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and hope to see you next time.